Father, we approach your word not flippantly, not just habitually, but with reverence, with expectation. And God, may we not bring into this word our baggage, our thoughts, our feelings, unless we are willing to have them corrected and disciplined by your truth. We ask for your Holy Spirit's help for me to speak and for all of us to hear and receive and then do what we see receive, what, what we see revealed here in this word. Help us, we ask, and we expect it with joy in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, I want to start. This, this popped up yesterday. We were at a place down in Princeton eating breakfast, Dolly's Diner. I recommend it. My family doesn't, but uh, anyway. So we're, we're sitting there, and, and I've got this mug with coffee in it, and it's, it's like one of those restaurant mugs that has ads sold on it. You know, so it's got ads for Dutch Miller, Ford, and whatever. Well, I looked at one, and it was a church. And I saw Church of God, and then I saw the website. Again, this just has my brain's process. And the website was, for this church, GodIsGoodOnManhood.com. GodIsGoodOnManhood.com. I'm like, I want to see this website. I want to know what's going on here. I mean, I, God's good on manhood. I, I believe that's true, but I'm like, that is such a weird web address. Why would you choose that as your... GodIsGoodOnManhood.com. I'm like, man, well, then I read the rest of the ad, and I actually had misread it because the church of God that it was talking about is on Mayhood Avenue. M-A-H-O-O-D Avenue. So the actual web address is GodIsGoodOnMayhood.com But man, I had, I had this picture of this website in my brain about manhood and, you know, oh yeah, you know, it's power tools and guns and God, you know. And I brought into the, the real thing my thoughts, my expectations, my misunderstanding of what I thought it said. And once I saw it was mayhood instead of manhood, it changed everything. No more guns, no more power tools, just God's good on Mayhood Avenue down in Princeton somewhere. Well, I think that's our tendency, isn't it? To bring into something, something that we think we know or something that we think we can imagine or something that we think should be a certain way. And then we read the text that way. This is one of those passages that I'd say most of us, so reading that today, you've heard a lot of stuff about this passage in your life. You've got some expectations, you've got some thoughts, you've had some teaching about what this passage really means. And listen, I'm not here to blow your mind and change it all. But let me tell you what I do want to do. I want to make sure that I'm not checking out God is good on manhood before I actually see what it actually says. Okay? So let's let the text speak. Let's let the Spirit teach us and be willing to be wrong because we know that the Word of God is right. Okay? So, we start here in 
chapter 6, verse 4. I've got like a lot of chapter... I don't know what's going on there. Anyway, for it is impossible... In the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit and have tasted the goodness of the Word of God and the powers of the age to come and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding Him up to contempt. What a sentence. Loaded with implications, right? Three verses with a lot to unpack here. And I'm pretty doggone excited to unpack it. And since our first word is for, back in verse 4, it's obvious, and please, it's obvious that this is in the same flow of thought as what we looked at last week. You cannot separate this text from the context. I'm probably going to say that a hundred times this morning. And what we looked at last week was speaking of the importance for these believers to be moving on to maturity, moving past and building on the foundational catechism type truths that these believers would have learned and now need to relearn. And again, don't miss that connection. Let us leave the elementary doctrines of Christ and go on to maturity, and this we will do, if God permits, for. This is in direct connection with the need to move on to maturity. For, he says, it is impossible. Something is impossible in connection with maturity and or immaturity. Actually, it's going to be a lack of maturity that this impossibility comes that we'll see. Go on to maturity, for it is impossible in the case of those who... dot, 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 and we'll fill in those blanks here as we go, but go on to maturity, for it's impossible for those who have fallen away from these foundational truths, it's impossible to restore them to repentance. The who's and they's and yours are very important in this passage, and it's imperative to understand that. What the writer is saying is that there is a condition, there is a time, there is a person or some people for whom repentance is no longer possible. There is a falling away that there is no getting up from. That's pretty important, don't you think? Something can happen that can make it impossible for a human being to be restored again to repentance toward God. And while we'll get there in a bit, if you jump ahead to the end of verse 8, you see that the end of this no repentance is to be cursed and to be burned. So this is a very serious and a very big deal. And so the question then is, who is in danger of falling into this condition where it's impossible to repent. They didn't move on to maturity, but instead they are those who, and here's a list, okay? These people have once been enlightened. These people have tasted the heavenly gift. 
These people have shared in the Holy Spirit. These people have tasted the goodness of the Word of God. They have tasted the powers of the age to come, and then they have fallen away. Yeesh. And we're going to explore what these things mean and what they look like in contrast to going on to maturity. So first, what does it mean that these people have once been enlightened, tasted the heavenly gift, shared in the Holy Spirit, trust, tasted the goodness of the Word of God and the powers of the age to come? I mean, that's a lot, right? Now, one of the main issues we have to address is, does this mean that these people were saved and then they fell away to a place where they can't repent of and therefore they're going to be cursed and burned? Because that's a very big deal. Now let me just ask you this. If you just knew me and what I've taught over the years, do you think that's what I believe this is saying? No. I hope you can definitively say, no, Jason, I don't think you, you believe that. That's important, but not nearly as important as what does the text say, right? I have been pretty clear to this point of our journey through Hebrews, I think, to say, and I'll say it as clearly as I can here, that nobody can be saved and then not be saved. Amen. Perseverance of the saints is a sign of being saved. Yep. We talked about that in Hebrews 3 and in Hebrews 4. If you hold fast to the end, your confession is more of a descriptor than it is a condition. You're saved if you do that. You're saved since you do that. We could say it the same way. And we also said through that section that we have to know the consistent thought pattern of a person to know why they are saying what they are saying and what it means in light of their overall thought pattern. Remember I said, if you hear me say that I hate the New York Yankees, that hate is couched in the fact that I'm really a big fan of them. It doesn't mean that I'm a fan of another team. I'm not a Red Sox fan, God forbid. It means that the Yankees have broken my heart yet again by failing or by not doing something that would make me happy if they did. I hate them because I love them. You've got to know the person and their vein of thought and their the truth that they consistently speak and show so that you can know how to hear something that they're saying. So all that being said, I'll say very clearly here that no, I do not believe that the writer of Hebrews here is talking about people who were saved and fell away because he's never said that and will never say that. So many use this passage as a stern warning against backsliding or losing your salvation and... I I believe we'll see today that the context does not bear that out. But, I want to make sure we don't miss the point of this passage. And the author's intent, listen to me, was neither to start or settle the once saved, always saved debate. It's not the point of this passage. And I think both Calvinists and Arminians use this passage for that. And it's not the point. It's not what it's here for. The writer of Hebrews was not saying, well, John Calvin had some pretty good points, so I'll raise or you know what, I think Calvin was wrong. That was 1,500 years later. Okay? So using this passage to support your Calvinism, wrong. Using this passage to support your Arminianism, wrong. 
It's not the point. It's not the point. And in case I didn't say it or wasn't clear, that's not the point. We need to know what the author's intent was. We are so prone to come to a section of Scripture like this and have a preconceived notion that this is that passage. God is good on manhood. (laughs) Hebrews 6, Romans 9. We use those passages, they're hotly debated, with one side choosing to use one to prove their point and the other they just dismiss as, well, that's not what that means. And listen, there's a word for that. It's called eisegesis. Eisegesis means we read into the passage what we think it says. But we're exegetes, right? We're into exegesis. We want to go into the passage and pull out of the passage what the passage is saying and what the passage means. We ain't eisegetes. We are exegetes. And just to be clear on something else as well, listen, the context of the book overall is an effort of the author to point out the betterness of Jesus to whom? Who's he writing to? To a group of people who are ethnically Jews and have now trusted in Jesus as their Savior. And he has gone and he's going to go to great lengths to show the sufficiency of Jesus' sacrifice to atone for the sins of his people in contrast to what? And we've already seen this some. In contrast to the Jewish Levitical sacrificial system. The crucifixion of Jesus was the perfect work of God to provide an atoning sacrifice for the sins of his people. All the Levitical priestly work prior to Jesus, during Jesus' time and after Jesus' time, was insufficient to take away sins. And all that work was to foreshadow what Jesus would accomplish fully in His life, death, burial, resurrection, and ascension. And these Jewish believers get out of 21st century America, go back to 1st century Israel, and think like Jewish believers. Because that's who this letter is written to. And these Jewish believers needed reminded and re-reminded and re-reminded that the blood of bulls and goats was no longer necessary for those who have placed their faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ. And don't think that they weren't tempted. Don't think that they weren't worried or fearful amongst these Jewish believers, amongst these Jewish non-believers. They were afraid that maybe they should continue to participate in this animal sacrifice system. The Judaizers that Paul so frequently battled with were calling for the full keeping of the Jewish law for people to be faithful in their estimation, to be saved in their estimation. Now imagine being a Jewish believer in Jesus in this early stage of the Christian faith. Somebody comes up and preaches a gospel you've never heard before about a man who was God in the flesh, who died, who was buried and resurrected and then ascended into heaven and is now seated at the right hand of God interceding for you after offering himself as a sacrifice for your sins. So everything you've learned before was just point to that and you don't need to do any of that stuff anymore. Are you just going to go, okay. I don't think so. 
These Jewish believers that this letter is written to would surely be struggling with going back and forth about whether they should be sacrificing animals or not. So keep that in mind as we proceed. Now let me give some definitions. Let's look at this enlightened, tasted, shared, tasted, tasted. Okay? Who are these people? What's happened to them? They've been enlightened. That means to give light, to shine, to light up or illumine, to render evident, to cause something to exist and thus come to light and become clear to all, to give understanding to. These people have once been enlightened. Tasted. They've tasted the heavenly gift. They've tasted the goodness of the Word of God. And they've tasted the powers of the age to come. Now, we don't really need to define tasted, do we? I've tasted peas. No thank you. actually. Not just no thank you. To perceive the flavor of something. To partake of something. To have an experience of something. And these people have tasted the heavenly gift. They've shared the holy... Oh, I'm sorry. They've tasted the goodness of the Word of God and they've tasted the powers of the ages to come. They're like, hmm, it's all right. Or it's good. Maybe they just thought it was good. This is good. And they've shared... This is the tough one. They've shared in the Holy Spirit. Shared means characterized by having, giving, or receiving a part of something. Translates as partaker, partner, fellow, and to be a partner in a work, office, or the dignity of something. So these people who we are considering here that are in a place where it is impossible for them to turn to repentance now, have once been enlightened, have tasted the heavenly gift, have shared in the Holy Spirit, have tasted the goodness of the Word of God, they've tasted the powers of the age to come, and then they have fallen away. Now, fallen away means what? They ain't doing it no more. Now, does this mean that these people were saved and then fell away? And I've already tipped my hand. I've actually already showed you all my cards. From these verses and these definitions, we could make that case. That it would make pretty good sense, right? These people were enlightened. The lights came on. They got an understanding of spiritual things. They had tasted. They had partook of the heavenly gift and the Word of God and the powers of the ages to come. They had shared in. They had been partners with the Holy Spirit. Now from that definition, we could assume that those people had been saved. If this is all we had. So were they saved or not? Well, the point is we can't just take these three verses and these definitions to determine what salvation is, can we? No. And that's not the author's intention anyway. He's urging his readers to press on to maturity, to not be just those who, oh, I got enlightened once. Oh, I've tasted. Oh, I've actually partook in this thing. I was a partner with these people. He's saying, no, you need to press on to maturity. Why? Because these believers that he's writing to, not these people here, they're lagging in their growth. And they need elementary things retaught to them. He wants them, we said, to have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. 
And if you look at all of these verbs, they're past tense, right? They have once been. They have tasted. They have shared. And then they have fallen away. Those are things that happened in the past. What he wants his readers, these Christians, to see is, I want you to have your powers of discernment trained by constant practice, now and into the future, to distinguish good from evil. Let me tell you what he's not saying. He is not saying that they need to be afraid of losing their salvation. He's not even working here to give them assurance. Yet, he's going to. He's saying here in these three verses that there are dangers and immaturity that are akin to not even being truly converted. Avoid the confusion of worrying about your conversion by pressing on to maturity so that this is not even an issue. And there will be those who will reach a point where they cannot be restored to repentance. That's, and that's, that's grave, that's serious, that's horrible. Is that possible for someone who has been born again? The vast weight of so many scriptures is clear that it is not possible for Jesus to lose one member of His body. Remember, no otomies in the body of Jesus. And again, in a few verses, the writer of Hebrews is going to say that he feels sure of better things than this for the beloved ones who he's writing this letter to. Those who are his brothers and brothers with Christ himself, he's not ashamed to call them brothers by God's doing. So if we just took these three verses and these definitions, we could say, I think this could be saying that you could lose your salvation. But may we never take the text out of the context and build a doctrine around it. Anybody, not just Arminians, not just those who think you can lose yourself, all of us, may we be very, very, very careful not to eisegete a passage and make it our champion, but this is the one. I'll show you that what I believe is right because this says this. May we never do that. Because again, he's going to say something completely opposite of that in just a few verses. So, that would mean that this passage doesn't teach that saved people can lose their salvation either. Again, just not the point. The greater danger being presented here is for Jewish people to revert back to the sacrificial system. That's the flow of thought that we're in here. Instead of clinging to the finished work of Jesus on their behalf, they were enlightened, they saw the truth of the teaching of the cross, they tasted, they nibbled at the heavenly gift, the goodness of the Word of God and the powers of the age to come. They shared in, they were partners with the Holy Spirit and what He was doing, but they fell away. And why? Because they just couldn't shake the fear of God, listen, not being pleased by any way but through the works of the law that they had been saturated in for most of their lives. And so they went back to making sacrifice, hoping to please God that way. This is how God's always been pleased. This is how we've always staved off divine wrath, is by sacrificing animals. And you're saying, I don't have to do that anymore? Sorry, I just don't believe it. All this talk about Jesus and the Holy Spirit, that sounds great. But if Jesus is God and the Holy Spirit is God, God said we're supposed to sacrifice animals. And so you're saying a man died on a cross. Again, sounds wonderful, but I'm going to trust in what we've always done. I'm going to trust in what makes me feel better. 
They just couldn't shake the fear that God wouldn't be happy with them if they weren't sacrificing animals. And so they reach a point where grace-driven faith in the finished work of Jesus becomes an impossibility. Not because God wouldn't accept their repentance if they were repentant. John Piper says, At no time will God refuse to forgive a repentant person. But these people can't repent because their faith is in their deeds. Their faith is in their works, their offerings, their keeping of the law instead of resting in the finished work of Jesus. They can't repent because their deeds have become their hope. The law is their hope. The blood of sheep and bulls have become their hope. And this passage is referring to someone who cannot repent because they've made their mind up and have reached a point where they can't change it. A commentator by the name of Sigurd Grindheim. Sigurd, S-I-G-U-R-D. Never heard that name in my life. Anyway, he says this. It is impossible that those who reject the gift of Christ may repent because God does not grant repentance in any other way than through Christ and they have put themselves in a position in which they cannot turn to Him. It's impossible for them to repent because they've already made their minds up. And this is how we're going to please God. Not that Jesus pleased God and we're going to put our faith in Him. So let's try to wrap up this section before we move on to the next one. It would be very tempting to just exegete these three verses and spend a whole message. But we can't do that because the context calls for something else. So up to this point, the writer of Hebrews is urging his readers to press on toward maturity and he's pointing out that there are dangers of not moving forward in the faith and gives the examples of those who have tasted and then fell away and then they're not able to be restored again to repentance. It is a terrifying thought to reach a point where you can't repent because that means you can't be saved. And now watch what he says is the thing going on that shows that this is true. Since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding Him up to contempt. This is a huge statement. Now this part of this used to really make me scratch my head because I didn't know what in the world he was referring to. What does it mean to crucify once again the Son of God? But like we said earlier, the contrast here is between the perfect sacrificial work of Jesus and the Levitical system of animal sacrifices. And now here, the writer brings us Jesus' crucifixion as the main issue. These immature believers that he's writing to who are born again, who need to be retaught the elementary doctrines of Christ, are trending towards being like those who don't believe that Jesus' work is sufficient. And once you think Jesus isn't enough, you try to fill in the blanks and do things yourself. Well, it can't hurt to keep on sacrificing, just in case. And each animal slain is like saying, well, Jesus, we need more blood. It's like you're re-crucifying the Christ with each animal. They're holding up Jesus, the Son of God. They're holding Him up to contempt. That word contempt is a full 25-cent Greek word. But what it means is to disgrace publicly. It's like holding up Jesus on the cross and saying... 
No, that's not enough. Do it again. Matter of fact, let me do it again and again and again and again ad nauseum. Looking at Jesus on the cross and saying, I'd rather trust in the blood of a bull than the blood of the Son of God. Holding Him up to contempt. Not only is Jesus not better, Jesus isn't enough. Leaning on the Levitical law instead of resting on the spotless Lamb of God is shameful. It's disgraceful. And you can get down that road to a point that there's no turning back, the writer emphasizes. And this is to their own harm, he says. Indeed. Harm to the point of damnation, which we see elaborated on in verses 7 and 8. For land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those for whose sake it is cultivated receives a blessing from God, but... If that land, if it bears thorns and thistles, that land is worthless and near to being cursed, and its end is to be burned. I know I mentioned this part earlier, but we definitely need to dig deeper into it. Just in case you might think that the writer didn't mean that these people would be lost eternally who can't be brought to repentance, he makes that clear in these verses. They re-crucify the Son of God and hold Him up to contempt for... For land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces crop useful for those whose sake it is cultivated receives a blessing from God. You might think, what? How did we get here? What's this got to do with anything? But he's setting up a contrast here. Those unable to repent are destined for harm, and so he uses a farming analogy to show what that harm looks like. And before he paints the picture of land that matches the non-repenters, he shows the opposite of that. You got a plot of land. Farmer's got it. What's the farmer want to do with that land? He wants a crop. So he sows seed, it receives, it drinks the rain that often falls on it. And like it's good and right and profitable, when that happens, the land produces a crop useful to those for whose sake it is cultivated. And that land receives a blessing from God because it did what it was intended to do. The point is this. When things go like they're designed to and turn out the way they're supposed to, God is pleased and blesses. When the Word is sown, it is supposed to bring forth fruit. So the seed is sown, the rain falls on it, it produces fruit, the farmer goes, yes, that's good, praise God from whom all blessings flow. Right? Think of people who hear the Word of God and produce fruit to the glory of God. That's as it should be. And those people are blessed. They receive a blessing from the Lord. But there's another type of land too. But if it, the land, bears thorns and thistles. Now you're a farmer. You sow seed. You want, I don't know, what do you want? Corn. What? Peas. No, you don't want peas. <laughs> You want corn. Man, you can use corn for so many things, right? You are surrounded by corn in our culture, by the way. You just may not know that. Yeah, I don't know where that came from. You want corn. You sow corn seed. And up come thorns and thistles. We were like, well, shoot. That's not what I wanted, right? 
If it, bore, if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless. That land is worthless. Think about Matthew 13, and they said, hey, bad seed springing up. You want us to uproot it? So he's like, no, don't uproot it, because then you're going to harm the good stuff. Let it grow up together, and then we'll gather it and what? Burn it. Right? So this field is only producing thorns and thistles. What's going to happen to it? You can't redeem thorns and thistles. They don't make any fruit. They don't produce anything useful or profitable. They just bring pain. So, we're going to have to uproot everything and we're going to have to burn and destroy these plants. And the picture's clear, right? Those who hear the Word of God, the good seed, receive common grace and the sun shines on them just like it does the unrighteous and the rains fall on them just like it does the unrighteous. They receive God's kindness but they're not fruitful in their lives, only producing thorns and thistles allegorically, then their lives are destined for what? Condemnation. For fire. For eternal judgment. Those lives do not glorify God. They don't bear fruit and therefore glorify God and thus they are worthless and they receive a curse with their end that they are burned, literally, by eternal flames of judgment of punishment. It's another way to show the dire nature of this warning of falling away and not being able to be brought again to repentance. It is a serious call to trust in the finished work of Jesus instead of the work of men and animals to try to cleanse your heart and your conscience. It's a serious offense to look at the work of God and dismiss it and disgrace it and the end will show just how serious that is. It's bleak. It's dark. It's hard. And it's the outcome of rejecting God's best and replacing it with your best. Tough, tough stuff. And if this chapter, this thought pattern ended here, we would be in despair. But it don't. Thank God He's not done in this thought pattern. He's not done in this letter. There's much, much more starting with the next thought which we see in verse 9. Oh, <laughs> though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. Amen. <laughs> yes, amen. Yes. The writer knows that he's been speaking some tough truths, scary things. He feels the weight of it too. And he knows the real danger of his readers being scared into missing God's rest. He said earlier they should be scared of missing God's rest. He don't want to scare them into missing the rest. He wants them to be scared of missing it so that they'll rest. So he says, though we speak in this way about cursed land, about those who can't be restored to repentance, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. What a wonderful sentence. The author has been speaking of those who would be eternally condemned, those who were holding Jesus and His sacrifice up to contempt. But, he says, though, that's not you. That's not your end. Who is the your here? He identifies them by saying they are beloved. Who's beloved? The writers? Yeah. But also they're the beloved 
of God. They're betrothed to the Christ. They are God's beloved, the beloved of the Father, the sons of God, the brothers of Jesus, the friends of the Holy Spirit. He's saying things are different for you, saved folk. Though we speak in this way about those who are cursed, yet in your case, beloved. How sweet is that? And in the case of these beloved ones, the writer says that he, we, feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. How sweet is that? Like, sweet, kind of sweet. No, not curses, not punishment. There is therefore now no condemnation, but better things than that. And I would say so. Things that belong to salvation. The opposite of judgment and condemnation is salvation. They have been saved from the just judgment of God against their sins. The opposite of being burned is being given blessings and rewards and sharing eternity with God to the praise of His glorious grace. I just cannot get over how bright this becomes following all the talk of those who reach a place of not being able to repent. It's a stark contrast on purpose and a welcome one for the people of God. I have said many times in our journey through Hebrews thus far that the writer is not trying to scare his readers into trying harder to do better. But he is warning them. He is speaking in strong language language within an honor and shame culture for the good of the group and the collective benefit, but he's always quick to say, this is about them, but it's not about you. And this is probably the clearest example of that in the book. The writer isn't telling ghost stories about hell, hoping they scare the reader straight. He's talking straight and clear and warning of dangers that are clear and present and are to be avoided and repented of by those who have a greater hope than the unrepentant could ever imagine. That's the point of the letter. That's the point of this passage even when he talks about those who can't be brought again to repentance. That's still the point. And for further proof, proof that they are to be rewarded and not condemned, verse 10, For God is not unjust, so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for His name in serving the saints as you still do. See? And the writer doesn't appeal to them primarily in what they've done. He, said, he mentions that, which he calls their work and the love that they have shown for God's name and serving the saints as they still do. That's there, and he points that out. But what's the focus? He calls upon the justice of God as the primary driver in all of this. For God is not unjust so as to overlook all of this. Just as they have rested on the goodness of God to save them, they can rest now on His justice to reward them for their service. And that service, the work and the love, were done in and for God's name. No, there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, only reward and blessing, and that's just. That's the outcome of a just God meeting out justice to those who have had their sins paid for by the atoning work of Jesus and then worked their works in His power, His name, and for His glory. God is not unjust so as to overlook that. So He's not pointing to God and saying, He's going to be mad at you. 
He's saying that's impossible. God's not unjust so as to get mad at you after He saved you. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. All we have to look for is reward. That's all we have in front of us. And that's justice. Why? Because of what Jesus did. God justly punished our sins in the person of Christ, so now justice demands that we get the reward that Christ bought for us. Not condemnation, not eye rolls, and get out of my presence, you disgust me. A just God meets out rewards for the works done by those who have had their sins paid for by the atoning work of Jesus. And He's not unjust so as to overlook that. So then what? Verses 11 and 12. And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness to have the full assurance of hope until the end so that you may not be sluggish but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. (laughs) How good is that? i got to be honest, I was not expecting this here. After seeing what we've looked at this morning, we come now to the why of it all. What is it that the writer hopes to accomplish with all of this? What's his desired outcome? And we desire each one of you to dot, dot, dot. The author wants something for and or from his readers. Each one of them. And we desire each one of you to, and we see three things, to show the same earnestness, two, to have the full assurance of hope until the end, and three, so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. (laughs) That makes it pretty clear. Listen, this whole section that we've covered this morning is not meant to scare or shut down these believers, but it is to urge them on to encourage them and move them toward earnestness, assurance, and faith. Earnestness is to give all diligence. We've seen that word diligence a lot already in Hebrews. To interest oneself in carefully. He wants them to be earnest, to show the same earnestness, to be interested in this fully. And what are we to show earnestness for? Listen. To have the full assurance of hope. To the end. This is an assurance passage. This is not about making you question your salvation. It's about assuring you that Jesus did save you. Huh? So that we may have the full assurance of hope until the end. And that word assurance. Blessed assurance. Jesus is mine. Oh, what a foretaste of glory divine being sure having complete confidence is the literal meaning of that word assurance 
Assurance for believers is the desire of the writer in this passage. Don't miss that. God is good on manhood. Not manhood. Oh, that's what it says. And that surety is that our hope is secure, true, real, and unshakable until the end, he says. Oh, y'all, I'm going to jump up on this pulpit in a second. I couldn't, actually. Climb up, maybe. Maybe. I don't know if my knees would let that happen either. And what's the purpose of this earnestness and assurance? So that. Always look for the so that's. So that we may have full assurance of hope until the end. So that you may not be sluggish. Sounds like he said this before, right? But, not sluggish, you have your earnest, earnest to know the full assurance of the hope that you have so that you wouldn't be sluggish, but instead you would be imitators of those who through faith and patience oh, inherit the promises. So that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. Listen, the writer of Hebrews is not at all interested in an intellectual faith that doesn't lead to action. Instead, he hopes all of this leads to his readers not being sluggish. And we've already seen this word sluggish before too. Slow, sluggish, indolent, dull, languid. The writer wants his readers to earnestly pursue their assurance so that they won't be slow, dull, or sluggish. So that they might be, as James would say, doers of the word and not hearers only. So that they would have their thoughts trained because of constant practice to distinguish good from evil and then do the good and forsake the evil. That's what he wants for them more than anything. And the action, the lack of sluggishness is attained when? When they are earnestly apprehending their full assurance of hope until the end. Now again, I can't stress this enough. Not a boogeyman story that scares his readers into a terrified struggle to adhere to strict moral guidelines that if you do this, God's going to get you. But instead, listen a restful assurance that arms them to fight the good fight of the faith. That's the point of this passage. And may it be our focus as we seek to apply it as well. So, application. I'm going to let the writer give us our points today. I'm going to give him three S's but we'll talk about what those mean from the context. Three S's for application. Serious. Why so serious? Slow and sure. Serious, slow, and sure. These are our application points from this passage today. And all of these application points are based on verses 11 and 12. We desire that each one of you, we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness, that's serious, to have the full assurance, that's sure, 
which is point three, until the end, so that you may not be sluggish, which is slow. Okay? But I put them out of order because it's much better to end on assurance. Serious, slow, sure. We are called to be serious in our pursuit of the faith that has once and for all been delivered to us. And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness. This faith that we have, that we have been given as a gift of God's grace is not to be flippantly received and then forgotten about. Okay, thanks God. Merry Christmas. How serious are you about your Christian faith? How much does it matter to you? And again, I hope that you can know that I'm not trying to guilt you into anything. Just asking you to evaluate yourself. Let me ask it this way. This is a little tougher way to say it. What's more important to you than your faith in Jesus Christ? Something to think about. And what I want to encourage you with today is there shouldn't be anything more important than that. How do you prioritize your thoughts, your feelings, your actions, your life, your work, your play, your rest, which is all worship, so that it shows this is the most important thing in my life? Oh, and we, we fail miserably at this. Right? You're all a bunch of jerks. Incompetence. Oh, and me too. God surprised by that? There's no panic in heaven. Oh, Jason's really messing this up, man. I speak as the foolish women speak. He knows. And you know what He wants for you? He wants you to know the joy of Him being the most important part of your life. Not just part of your life. That's a terrible way to say that. God wants you to enjoy Him as a matter of first importance and filter everything through that. How serious are you, let me ask you this, about pursuing your joy in the person of God? Man, we got a lot of things to entertain us. Advent season, right? we got gifts to look for. Nothing wrong with those things. But they're not the best things. How serious are you? We desire each one of you to show the same earnestness, importance, priority. How earnest, how serious are you in your faith? Something to evaluate as a matter of application. Because, point two, is slow so that you may not be sluggish. You feel sluggish in your faith? And notice how we tend and trend. I'm a therapist. And what I just ask you, do you feel? Are you sluggish in your faith? Or are you pressing on to maturity? 
Are you constantly training your mind to discern good from evil? Or are you like, eh, not today. Amanda sent me a picture the other day. It showed a girl sitting in bed and she said, you know what, maybe today, Satan. <laughs> We're always like, not today, Satan. Sometimes like, yeah, maybe, maybe today. If we're honest, not today. I just don't have the energy. I don't have the capacity. I don't have the bandwidth today to focus on God. Listen. Be honest with yourself. Be honest. He knows anyway. Got a busy week coming up. Don't be dull, slow in your faith. Be diligent in your faith. Be diligent to pursue God and the things of God as you pursue these things. Let Him be the power that empowers you to do these things. Worship Him with these things, in these things, through these things. May these things press us on to know and love and serve Him more and more and more and more. The more you know Him, the more you love Him, the more you love Him, the more you'll serve Him. And the more you serve Him, the more you'll glorify Him. And you get the blessing from that. Don't put your faith on a shelf. Say, I just don't have the energy today. Go to God and say, I don't have the energy today. He says, good, I'll be the power that works in and through you today. Give us the power to do today what we can't do for ourselves. How many times have I heard Don pray that? Maybe our prayer every day. Don't be slow. Don't be sluggish in your faith. Be serious. Be earnest. Don't be slow or sluggish. And what does all of this come out of? Point three, being sure. You will not know the full pleasures of God and His salvation until you have assurance that He has done it. You will ever be striving to try to earn His pleasure if you're not sure that it's already been purchased for you. Well, maybe I need to go sacrifice an animal today. We don't think that way. But we definitely doubt and worry and concern ourselves. Maybe I'm not good enough. Let me give you great rest. You're not good enough. You will never be good enough. Say it, brother. I hear you. I'm not good enough. And Jesus is. Jesus was. Jesus Christ was born of a virgin, God in the flesh. He lived a perfect life. He satisfied the righteousness of God through the righteous demands of the law perfectly like no human being ever could. And then He gave up His life, crucified on a cross, absorbing the wrath for my sins and your sins upon Himself so that there is therefore now no condemnation left for those who are in Christ Jesus because the justice of God has been satisfied. Your sins have been punished with no need to be punished further. No doubting, not trying to earn anything. And the only way that we'll be serious, the only way that we'll not be slow, the only way that we'll be earnest and diligent is when we rest 
in the perfect work of Christ and have full assurance of our faith in who He is and what He's done. We desire each one of you to show the same earnestness to have the full assurance of hope, not just now, but until the end. The blood of Jesus ain't failed me yet and never will. When I stand before the throne of God, my hope, my cry is not going to be, yeah, but I. I'm going to look away to Jesus and say, because of Him. And I can have that full assurance right now. And rest. And let that rest propel you into warfare and work for the glory of God. That's the point of this passage. God is good on Mayhood and on 655 Dry Hill Road. Let's pray. When we are faithless, God, you remain faithful. During this Advent season, Father, as we look at these texts and these passages and these truths that are there to transform us into the likeness of Christ, may we celebrate His first coming. May we look eagerly toward His second coming, knowing that we have full assurance of our hope in Him until the end. And on that day when before the throne we make our last confession, it will be, I trust Jesus. All my hope is in Him. All my rest is in Him. All my glory is in Him. All my joy is in Him. And every act I did that brought God any glory was done in the power that He provided. And we desire, God, that each one of us would show the same earnestness to have the full assurance of hope until the end so that we may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises that You have made. And faithful is He who calls us. He will, You will, God, surely do it. Thank You for that. We trust You and we love You. Ask you to bless us and draw us and help us and use us in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand and receive a benediction? Mm. Now to Him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of His glory with great joy to the only God our Savior through Jesus Christ our Lord be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. And all God's people said... Amen. You're dismissed, but stay and eat with us if you can.